The reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. For as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, Redemption. How you doing? All right. You guys are much livelier than the first service, let me tell you. You have that feather in your cap. Uh, my, name, my name is Frank, and if you're new here, we're glad that you are here. Uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Arcadia, and the reason we identify ourselves as Arcadia is if you don't know about Redemption Church, we are one church with 10 congregations, but each congregation isn't a site, it isn't a campus, it's, it's a locally led congregation by a lead pastor and a team of of pastors and staff and local elders, uh, but we also believe as Redemption Church we are better together, and so we're one church with 10 congregations, uh, and so we're the, the Arcadia flavor of that congregation. Uh, and some of you just heard the reading that Mark did, and you're kind of like, if you were here last week, you're kind of like, hey, what happened to the Psalms? I thought, I, thought, I thought we started the Psalms last week, and that's a very astute observation. That was not a reading from the Psalms. We're going to take a break from the Psalms uh, for just a, uh, a one Sunday to talk about giving and give you an update and kind of take care of some family business and, and, and kind of lay bare all of the financials, which is something that we need to do uh, from time to time. If you are new to redemption, uh, this is your first Sunday here. Um, chances are you're going to have uh, one of two reactions. You're going to have either this reaction of, well, churches, all they want is our money, so okay, fine. Please hear me out. We'll see at the end if you still feel that way. Yeah, we do. Anyway, so, no, I'm kidding. Um, or you're going to have the reaction like this. I, I heard both of those reactions this morning after the first service. Here's the other reaction you'll have. You'll have, I'm really glad you talked about that. My last church never talked about this, and, and the church should talk about this occasionally. So it's good to know what I'm getting myself into at Redemption. Uh, so we are going to talk about um, uh, uh, giving today, and we do not do this very often. In fact, uh, in four and a half years at Redemption Arcadia, this is the first Sunday that I'm devoting the entire message to uh, finances and giving. Um, and the reason we don't do it very often is because we really do believe that, that the gospel is going to change your heart. Um, if, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is not after your money, he's after your heart, but of course if your heart is transformed by the gospel, then your entire life is going to be transformed. You're not just going to give, but you're going to serve and you're going to, um, it's going to change your entire life. Uh, one of our founding pastors, Tom Schrader, our other being Justin Anderson, but Sh Schrader says it this way, as lightning follows thunder, giving and serving follow grace. It's a fundamental gospel reality. If Jesus has saved you, you are going to serve, you're going to give, you're going to be transformed, and you're going to understand priorities differently. Um, 
But on the other side of that coin, I will also say this, and this is one of the comments I heard this morning. If we withhold financial information as a church from the congregation and from people who attend here, uh, people also get troubled by that because they want the church to be transparent. So they want, and I understand this. I, I feel the same way. This is human nature. We want the church to be transparent, but we don't necessarily want the church to ask us for our money because that's a little personal. Well, we're going to throw all of that into the mixer today and talk about it. And here's the other thing. If a church never talks about money, the vast majority of the people in the congregation simply assume then everything's okay. And I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to pray about it. I don't have to reassess what I'm doing. I don't have to worry about what my part in it is, is in this, and, and everything must be fine. And so uh, we're going to talk a little bit today. We're going to get to the monthly giving, which is really what we want to talk about today primarily, because we have a bit of a challenge. It's not a crisis. It's just a challenge that I want to make you aware of. Um, this is not about the capital campaign, though we are going to give you an update on the capital campaign as well. And we thought today would be a good day to do it because uh, today marks the one-year anniversary of our two-year capital campaign to acquire and remodel our new property that we are going to own at 3330 East Camelback Road. And so let's start with that. Let's give a little capital campaign uh, update for you. <clears throat> now, if you know anything about the property, it's at 3330 uh, East Camelback, so it's just east of Camelback and 32nd Street, one of the, one of the best intersections in all of Maricopa County. Um, and the purchase price, on we bought three and a half acres, it was Biltmore Bible, the purchase price was $1.1 million on that property. Now let me talk a little bit about this purchase price, because if you're just coming to this party right now, you should look at that price and go, how did that happen, Okay. Well, here's how it happened. Biltmore Bible was there. They were planted out of Bethany Bible in 1959. Biltmore Bible was there uh, until 2008, uh, operating as a church, but continued to own the property until we bought it from them. Um, it, was a, it was a gospel-centered church, just like we are, very outward-focused, but it was a church that did not manage to perpetuate itself, and so it eventually quote, died, um, but they were planted out of Bethany Bible, and they were the sending church that also planted Camelback Bible and Scottsdale Bible, so a uh, magnificent um, um, history of gospel-centeredness from that property. Uh, when they died, um, as you can imagine, if you're in the commercial real estate business, uh, a number of multifamily housing developers began to get very excited about the possibility that this three and a half acres at 33rd Street in Camelback might come available. And so they started making offers to Biltmore Bible, and eventually the board from Biltmore Bible actually put together a deal with a multifamily housing developer, and they put it in escrow, and they were going to sell this property. And as I understand it, the price was somewhere between four and a half and five million dollars. And so then they went to the, um, essentially they got pretty far down uh, the, the road of escrow. I think it was actually when they went in to, to, ex to sign the papers and exchange checks and, che and all that. Um, the Holy Spirit convicted the board from Biltmore Bible about the fact that they really needed to sell to a church in order for the gospel to continue on that property at 33rd Street in Camelback. They also knew that in being convicted about this by the Holy Spirit, they also knew that there wasn't any church entity anywhere that would be able to pay them four and a half or five million dollars for that property. That's just not going to happen. 
okay? So they knew that by pulling out of this deal that they were going to have to take far less for the property, but they were okay with that because they said the kingdom work was more important than them uh, getting all, all of this money. And so they walked in and they pulled out of the deal. And then, without a lot of fanfare, they didn't publicize it, they just let it be known sort of in the network of Phoenix that, uh, that this property was available, and five churches and one seminary went in and gave presentations to their board about the possibility of acquiring this property, and we were one of those churches. And so I went into their board with Tyler Johnson, uh, Redemption's lead pastor, and Neil Pitchell, the executive pastor, and each, of, uh, each uh, entity that was trying to get the property got 15 minutes in front of the board. And so I kind of opened it up, and then Tyler did his thing, and then Neil closed it by giving them a letter of intent for $1.1 million. Two weeks later, we were called on the phone, and we were told that they had decided to allow us to have the property at $1.1 million. It's truly a miracle of God. Now, let, let me talk a little bit more about this purchase price. Uh, we have multifamily housing developers in our congregation. And there are a couple in particular who have come to me in the last year as I've talked about this property being worth four and a half to five million dollars, and they're telling me, you're way low on that. That raw land in the Arcadia area right now is valued at between three and three and a half million dollars an acre. And in fact, there's another um, uh, piece of property around 30th and Camelback that's just under five acres that was recently sold for 17 million dollars. And so... Let me just say this, conservatively speaking, okay, when we talk about the capital campaign, let's say that property was worth $5 million. I want you to understand that God's contribution to the capital campaign was $3.9 million, amen? And now what we're looking for is somebody to match that, no, I'm kidding, so... (laughs) So if you could just line up right here. Anyway, so the purchase price was a million one, uh, and here's how we acquired the property. We gave them $500,000 uh, in cash that, was, uh, that came out of the previous three years' reserves from Arcadia, and um, Big R Redemption gifted us the rest of that money. So it was kind of almost half and half um, uh, between the two, between us and between Big R Redemption. They, they put in about $300,000. We put in about $200,000, and that was uh, the, the initial $500,000. And then uh, Big R Redemption, out of their coffers, out of our coffers, so to speak, our collective coffers, um, uh, paid the other $600,000 and loaned that money to us at 0% interest and, and, and we're paying it back starting once we move in there at $2,500 a month plus 70% of any overages at the end of the year that we have um, until we pay it off. So we're hoping to pay it off in about uh, 10 years. So that's how we acquired the property. But then we have to, this property was built in 59 and 60 And so we had to um, also remodel it and fix it and bring it up to code. Um, If you know anything about retention, in 1959, the idea of retention was to just slope the parking lot towards Camelback Road, and then all the water would go into Camelback Road. The city's a little bit against that now, and so we had to figure out the retention and do all that stuff. And so uh, construction and finishing the property with you know, technology and, 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 and um, furniture and all that stuff, $2.15 million. Uh, we acquired a construction 
loan from MidFirst Bank. That should be coming. Yeah, there you go, for a million seven fifty. And so you can see that the cap, what, what we really need from the capital campaign is to start digging into that $2.15 million. And if nothing else, we needed to bridge that gap between the 2.15 and the 1.75. And so let me give you a little report on our first year of the capital campaign. Capital campaign started in June last year, and it goes through June 2017. We have thus far received pledges of $925,000, and we have actually received, as of June 1st, these aren't pledges, this is actual money that we've received as of June 1st, $510,000, so we're a little bit over halfway to our pledges. This is really good news, and we should be celebrating that. That's, that's really nice, okay? Um, now we're going to move into, though, the monthly giving, the monthly operational income and expenses, where, which is where we're experiencing a little bit of a challenge. So let me give you a review from 2016. Well, first let me talk about 2015. If you remember in 2015, if you were around, we planted two churches during 2015, Peoria and um, uh, South Scottsdale. And yet, at the end of 2015, we still had an overage of, of a little bit north of $24,000. That's really pretty good, and, and, and that's with sending out a number of people uh, uh, in doing that. Uh, but 2016 has started a little bit sluggishly, and I'll explain why we think that is, but we wanted to make you aware of it. Uh, January through April revenue, we get uh, monthly P&Ls <clears throat> that are generated about three weeks after the end of the month, so I'll get Mays sometime in the next 10 days. Um, uh, January through April revenue was 212000 We had budgeted for 253000 so we're short 41000 there. January through April expenses are 231000 We had budgeted for 244000 so we're 13000 short there. And so January through April overage or shortfall, we've had a shortfall January through April of $19,000, and we were budgeted for a surplus of $8,420. Uh, let me give you a little bit more insight as to what's involved um, uh, besides all the variable expenses of just trying to run a church, um, three of our bigger expenses in that $212,000. Uh, number one, uh, each congregation pays into central operations 11.4% of their receipts. And so maybe, uh, maybe $22,000 of that we've paid back into Big R um, uh, Central Operations. And in return for that, they take care of all of our administrative stuff having to do with uh, payroll, health care, insurance of any sort, um, uh, uh, retirement, uh, any of that stuff they take care of, plus they handle all the property maintenance for us as well. And again, if you know anything about church management, you can look all this stuff up yourself. You know that um, most uh, multi-site churches, they're not paying in to, to central operations 11.4%. They're paying in anywhere from 25 to 40%. So we're getting a big bang for our buck. And if we had to hire the people ourselves as our own congregation to do those things for us, it would probably be 20 to 25% of our, um, of, of our income. And so this is a really good deal for us. So we pay that into redemption. That's one of the reasons we're better together. Uh, and then we also pay in 10.1%, so about $21,000 so far. We pay that into uh, Redemption Church's Community and Global Initiatives. That is the mission arm of Big R Redemption Church. It is also the um, association that Josh Prather, one of our elders who was just up here with Ben Bear, he is the executive director of Community and Global Initiatives. And so he's in charge, for, he's an employee of Big R, 
He's an elder here at Arcadia. We're blessed to have him here at Arcadia. But he's the one who runs that budget for Redemption Church, all of Redemption Church. And so he's in charge of that. That's our missions. So our refugee work, our prisoner work, our foster care and adoption work, uh, any work that we do locally that is designed to bless our community, and then any work that we do globally as well in terms of going to Africa and all these other places to uh, extend missions, that money goes there uh, to Josh's organization. And those are uh, not variables. Those are, we, have to, we have to pay that in. And then, of course, there's personnel. And personnel is not a variable expense either unless you start cutting people out. That's the only way that it's variable. And again, if you study churches of our size, you will look at what we spend on, on personnel and the size of our congregation and how it is that we're trying to shepherd, and you will recognize pretty quickly that we're probably one full-time pastor short at Arcadia and have been for a while, but we have purposely chosen not to do anything about that because we've been a congregation in transition for so long. There was the transition four and a half years ago from Justin to Tyler to me. There was the transition of Sean Johnson out and Cody Kimmel in. And then there was the transition of planting two churches last year. And then there's the transition of us planting ourselves at 33rd Street and Camelback. We're a church in transition. We would like to get into our permanent property, settle in and see how things go before we legitimately assess how and if we are going to bring somebody else on to the payroll. So we're waiting to do that. But in the meantime, understand that at times we feel a little bit overwhelmed because we're a little bit short-staffed. But we're not complaining. We're just saying we're okay with that because we know where it is that we're going. But you can see that this is the area where we're struggling a little bit. Now, some of you may ask, and legitimately, well, where would we be financially if we hadn't planted Peoria and we hadn't planted South Scottsdale? And I can tell you, we probably would not be having this conversation, right? We sent with Peoria 50 adults and 25 children, and we sent to Scottsdale 60 adults and 30, a little bit, a few more than 30 uh, children. And generally, when you plant churches, you don't look around at your congregation and say, all the people we don't like, we want to just send them out. What you do is you send out leaders and givers and servers and those people who have truly been transformed by the gospel, okay? And it's not, that, it's not to say that those of us who are left are the schmucks. I'm just, <laughs> well, you can interpret everything I'm saying in a really negative way today, but go ahead, have fun, all right? Um, but, but you get the idea. So we're sending givers, you know, as well. And so we probably wouldn't be having this conversation, but I can also assure you that we would, uh, we, would be, we would look really good financially, but we would also be a church that potentially could be starting to die because every, uh, every bit of research on church, uh, churches, church life cycles, and church planting says that healthy, growing churches plant other churches, that when you quit planting other churches, when you quit looking outside of your own church community, you begin to die. And that death, the symptoms of that death take a while to catch up, but you don't, rea- you don't realize it usually in time. So we're a church that plants churches. Now, we planted two last year, so we're taking a little breather for a couple of years, but we're also looking and thinking and praying about where that next plant um, might be. In the meantime, we've lost those people, so giving is down a little bit. We recognize that, but we've also seen that attendance is starting to come back. Uh, And we are actually up to pre-Scottsdale plant attendance figures now. We're not up yet to uh, uh, pre-Peoria figures yet, uh, but we're headed in that direction. And so some of you may be saying, well, if our attendance is back up, why isn't our giving back up? And here's the reason why. 
Generally, what happens is when people start attending the church, the first Sunday that they're there, they don't start giving to that church. Uh, they either um, are continuing to give to their old church if they, if they went to a different church before they came here because they're not sure if they're going to stay at this church yet. And so what they're doing is they're dating the church. And that, that process can take anywhere from three months to 18 months, okay? So they're kind of dating. So giving tends to lag bumps in attendance. Or you have somebody new attending the church who is new to the gospel and doesn't even know yet that they're supposed to give to the church, to give to God's work. And so there's always a lag in giving. And so you look at these numbers, and let me give you some encouragement here. Some of you are like, well, why are you even talking about this? I'm saying, well, I want to continue this trend. Um, January and February, we had a shortfall of between those two months of about $12,000. And so that's normal for January and February in church work. And so we were looking forward to March. March is usually your biggest giving month prior to December. December is always your biggest one. March is usually your second biggest. We hit March, and March was just like January and February. It was about the same. And so we came out of March with a shortfall of $18,000, and the elders were looking at this saying, I think it's time that maybe we start thinking about saying something to the congregation. So as we started putting this together, we eventually got April's P&L. April was encouraging. April's uh, income was actually higher than January, February, or March, which is unusual. And uh, Stephanie had done a nice job, again, of controlling the variable expenses. And so we only lost about $1,500 in April, so that was better. I don't have the financials yet from May, but I can tell you that just eyeballing uh, things, I can tell you that May's giving was actually higher than any other month so far in 2016, which is totally out of the norm. May is never your highest giving month, but so far it was our highest. It's the only month we've had that was a little bit more than 60000 and if our expenses were held in check, which I believe they probably were, it means that we probably had a gain in May of about $3,000, so we're in the right direction. But you also need to know that June, July, and August are usually the worst giving years. The worst, they seem like years. The worst giving months in church work. Okay, so we got to hang in there. Remember, December is coming, which is always good. But we need, we need to do a little bit better job uh, until that point. Let me talk a little bit about attendance, and in particular, attendance in children's ministry, because that's the area that can really talk about church health, and this should encourage us some, okay? So before we planted Peoria in, March of, in May of 20, I'm sorry, February of 2015, we had between 85 and 105 children between the two services downstairs. That's, that was our children's ministry. When I first got here four and a half years ago, we had between 25 and 35 children. So our congregation has transformed into, into a, a church that really has a, a robust children's ministry. So um, January and February 2015, 185 to 105. Then we planted Peoria, sent out 50 people and 25 kids. Children's ministry dropped to about 65 to 85 from March till September. Then we sent out South Scottsdale. Children's ministry from October to December in 2015 uh, dropped to about the low to mid-40s. Occasionally, we had a high 30s in there. Right now, where we are with children's ministry, the last eight weeks, we've been in the high 60s and low 70s, and we've even hit 80 a couple of times. So children's ministry has even really come back, and God has started to backfill that really beautifully. So that's encouraging. That is a sign of a healthy church. 
And so what I'm trying to say is that this is not a sinking ship, but it's a thriving body that's just in a challenging season, and we need to make you aware of it, and we're going to talk a little bit about giving this morning. So I would say we are where God has called us, but he also calls us to push and persevere and to inform. And please, what I want you to hear this morning, and I know I can't control how you hear things, but what I, what I really desire for you to hear this morning is not giving out a compulsion or guilt because that never works long-term, it's never sustainable, it might work short-term, but it's also, that's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about joy and gratitude, and so what we want you to do is be able to give out of joy and gratitude. If you look at the Old Testament, there's pretty clear laws about what you're supposed to give to the work of God, but if you look at the New Testament, only once is the tithe mentioned, and that's in the book of Hebrews, and that's referencing it in a historical way. Every other time the New Testament talks about giving, and it talks a lot about giving, though, it talks about it in terms of your relationship with Christ and how the grace of God is working in your life without all of this law stuff. So it's really about grace. It's about joy. It's about, um, uh, about gratitude. One other thing I want to say as a preference, uh, as a, a, a preface uh, to all of this is... Um, in the past when I've done these talks, there's always a few people who think that somehow I am speaking specifically to them, but I didn't want to just have a cup of coffee with them and talk to them about it. And so what I do is I preach and hope you got the message. You know what I mean? Um, and that's just not happening. Uh, as a matter of practice, I do not look at individual giving records. And there's, a big, there's been a big debate in church world about that for decades, about whether pastors should know exactly what people are giving in their church or whether they shouldn't know. I fall into the shouldn't know camp, and I will tell you why. I know my heart well enough to know that it's just dark enough that the last thing I want to do is know what everybody's giving and start looking at you not as human beings but as giving units. Would you like to be identified as a giving unit by your pastor? I don't think so. Uh, and I don't say that um, to build myself up in any way. That's just the way I feel. I really believe that a shepherd's relationship with his flock should not be based on what he thinks the flock can do for him. The shepherd is here to serve the flock and to trust God that he's going to provide. But even in the midst of that, God calls us to talk about very difficult things. Here's the other thing that you guys hate when I start talking about that the Bible talks a lot about is sexual ethics and sexual behavior, okay? So I just thought I'd throw that out there so we could get both of them on the table and you can, you know. <laughs> Money and sex, man, he's really going after it today. Uh, let me talk a little bit about, um, and then I'm gonna get into the scripture, but let me talk a little bit about my giving history. And, and, and when I say my giving history, I need you to understand it's really the story of how the Holy Spirit has worked in my life. Um, I, I came to know Christ. God saved me at North Phoenix Baptist Church. So those of you that know Phoenix, it's, it's you know, the Bapidome at Central and Bethany Home. That's what I called it for years, okay? 40 acres there. Uh, my wife, Jackie, attended there since she was a little girl. She actually works there. She's worked there for 22 years in the Family Life Center now. Um, she attended there, and when we were first starting to get together, uh, and I was not a Christian, I used to mock her that she went to this big, elaborate, ornate church, and, and I used to say, do you really give money to them? And she'd say, yeah, of course I give. I get 10% of my income. Now. And I would mock her, and I would criticize her. I'd tell her she's stupid, she's crazy, and all that stuff. Next thing you know, I'm dating her, and so now i got to go to church with her there. So anyway, God's working in my life, all right? 
So I'm dating her. I come to know Christ. We get engaged. We end up getting married. And so now we're married, and I'm in there. And this is 1987, the end of 1987, okay? I am making $40,000 a year. Now, some of you are like, well, that's not a lot. It was 1987 when $40,000 was like $40,000, man. It's not like the 32.5 it is today. And so I'm making $40,000. Jackie's working full-time. We are dual income, no kids, okay? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I suppose I should be giving some money to this church now, okay? So I start writing a check for $10 every week to the church. Now quickly do the math, all right? That's $520 a year. That's about 1.2% of my income. And I got to tell you something. I gave this money with the attitude that God couldn't live without this money. And I was really, I was like, I'm cutting off my, my left arm for you, God. What are you going to do without this 10 bucks every week, you know? Ooh, how worthy I am. Literally, that was my attitude about it. And then one day I'm sitting in church, this is now 1988, I'm sitting in church and Richard Jackson gives a sermon and he talks a little bit about giving like we're doing here today. And my initial reaction was like, oh man, can't I just go to breakfast? And then I'm listening to him, the Holy Spirit starts working in my life, starts to stir my heart, and I'm like, all right, I get where he's coming from and it's in the Bible and I say I believe this stuff, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, still a really immature Christian kind of similar to today, but still, even more so than today, I really, I'm supposed to believe this stuff, so I'm listening to him, and I said, all right, I'm going to do this, okay? The Spirit works in my life. I am going to start giving 10% on the net, not on the gross, and here's why. Surely God understands taxes and how unfair they are and that they're not legitimate expenses, and so God knows that the first fruits mean after taxes, Amen. Not getting any love here, but that's what I did. So for about a year, I gave on the gross. And then I was at some crazy Bible study. So I wasn't even on giving. And there was something in there about how the Holy Spirit works in somebody's life. And I began to pray about that again. And the Holy Spirit took me right to giving and started working on me on the difference between the gross and the net. And I suddenly realized, all right, taxes are just another living expense that the first fruit is the net. Am I getting the terms right? The net, the, mo the, the, the check you have before taxes and all that other stuff get taken out. Gross, whatever it is. Okay, you, get, you understand where I'm going. So the money before the deductions, that's what I should be giving on. So I'm like, okay, I'm convicted of that. So I started doing that. Let me just stop and say here, those of you that are, that, that know Jesus, that know the gospel, and understand how the Spirit works in your life, the vast majority of the time that the Spirit works in your life, he works incrementally, amen? There are times when he just comes up and goes, hey, I've had those times, but more often he comes up and he goes, yo. <laughs> and just takes me a little ways down the road, and that's what he was doing. And then about a year after that, so now we're somewhere around 1990, okay, so for the last 25 years, this is what's happened. And again, this is not me. This is the Holy Spirit working in my life. The Spirit says, you know what you ought to do is you ought to really become a New Testament giver. Forget about moving decimal points around and giving 10%. Pray and then give the way I lead you to give. And I was like, that sounds really scary. He says, well, do you trust me or not? I mean, these are the, these are the internal conversations my soul is having with the Holy Spirit. So finally, I started to do that. And it was amazing what happened. Let me tell you what happened. This is just me. Uh, this is what happened in, in our life. I should say our lives, me and Jackie. 
But this is what's happened. We started giving based on what the Holy Spirit was prompting us to give. And at the end of the year, I, look, I'm pretty good at basic math. I can figure out a batting average just like that. I can figure out a save percentage in the National Hockey League just like that. I can look at a tax return and I can know how much our giving is in relationship to our total income. It is way more than 10% and we've never missed it. Now, have we felt it? Of course. Of course there are times when you pray and the Spirit says you should be giving this. And we're like, mm, that's going to hurt. And he says, yeah, but you need to have faith. You need to trust. Give this. So we felt it but we've never missed it. God has always been faithful to take care of us, even in times when we had no idea when the next 10 bucks was coming, okay? And so that's, here, here's what happened. When I went from a percentage giver to a Holy Spirit giver, I think what happened in my life is I went from understanding God and money from this. I went from trying to figure out how much of my money I was gonna give to, to God to trying to figure out instead how much of God's money I was going to keep. And that's a big switch, and that's an important switch, at least in, in, in my life. I began to realize I, I am not the owner, I'm the steward, I'm the manager, I'm the trustee. Randy Alcorn, in his magnificent little book, The Treasure Principle, writes this. A steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The manager carries no sense of entitlement to the assets he is entrusted with. It is his or her job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets and then carry out his will. Now, again, before we get into the scripture specifically, let me just tell you these, this. I think this is really interesting. If you look in the Gospels and you look at, you know, the red letters where Jesus is speaking and where Jesus is teaching, there are three topics that Jesus covers way more than anything else, way, way more. About 25% of the time he's covering, um, uh, so 75% uh, totally he's covering these three topics, the kingdom of God, the reality of hell, and money, finances, stewardship. Why does he spend so much time talking about those three things? I'll tell you why. Okay, number one, he talks about the kingdom of God because our understanding of what the kingdom of God and what heaven is is always driven by what we think it should be and not what God thinks it should be, and it's always way different. And if you think about when he's talking about the kingdom of God, who is he trying to explain the kingdom of God to? He's trying to explain it to his disciples who have no clue, and he's trying to explain it to the religious professionals of his day who certainly had no clue. Their understanding of the kingdom of God was that God was going to bring a Messiah in and they were going to kick Rome, the Romans out of Jerusalem and that was going to be the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 no. The kingdom of God is where the first will be last and the last will be served and you are going to be a servant of all. It's going to look weight. You are not going to be in power in the kingdom of God. You're going to be a servant. And you're going to be reigning with me, but you're going to be a servant. And so all of us have a messed up idea of what heaven and the kingdom of God really look like and so Jesus needs to teach us about that. The second thing is hell. Well, that's obvious. Most people, even evangelical Christians, don't believe in hell. That's a frightening proposition, but the, the, the research has been consistent for the last 25 years. The most recent uh, research that I saw showed that 65% of people who regularly attend American evangelical churches, 65% of them do not believe that hell is a real place or that there are people who have gone there or who will go there in the future. They don't believe what the Bible teaches about hell. 
Well, they were the same way 2,000 years ago. People don't want to believe in the reality of hell. It sounds really harsh, and it's really offensive. But it's also true if you believe that Jesus is the one who wrote all of this, and you say that you believe in what he has to say. And so he knows the human condition, and so he knows we're going to push back against that, so he teaches on the reality of hell. So you know where this is going. He teaches about money because he knows that that Out of all the false gods that we have, many of them are derivatives of money. Money is our biggest false god. Wealth is our biggest false god. Comfort, stuff, material. That is our biggest false god, and he needs to push against that, and he needs to help us understand who really owns it. Scripture says that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's a poetic, metaphorical way of saying it's all his, and we are just recipients of his blessing. So Jesus knows that we cannot divorce our faith from our finances, and he knows that it's the sharpest wedge that we have in our relationship between us and God. And I would say it kind of goes along with the old saying, I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I've heard a lot of people say it, give me your bank statement and your calendar, and I'll tell you what your priorities are. Now, most of us don't want to do that because we don't want to know what our priorities really are, but that's, that's not a bad way to look at it. And so here's what Paul says about this. He talks about it in a number of places, but here's what he says about it specifically to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I'll give you the context in a minute of what's going on here, but let me read the first 15 verses for you. Uh, we We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. That would be um, he's talking about four churches in particular that he's trying to um, uh, help give to the church in Jerusalem that's suffering from a very difficult economic time. And that would be the churches in Corinth, and then the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. He says, For a, uh, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, Uh, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. That's interesting. For they gave according to their means, and and as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel also in this act of grace of giving. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the theology behind giving. For you know the the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this manner I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it, now, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you are burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should apply to their need so that their abundance may supply to your need and that there may be fairness." 
As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left, and whoever gathered little had no lack. So here's what's happening. The church in Jerusalem is suffering under a tough economic season at this time. A year earlier, Paul set up a collection from the Macedonian churches, these four churches, Corinth, Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea, so that they could help Jerusalem. So he's essentially, he wants a love offering from these churches for Jerusalem. Now, the interesting part about this, though, is that Corinth is by far the richest church. They're the most financially well-off. They are a white-collar church just oozing money. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea are blue-collar churches uh, living hand-to-mouth, and yet Corinth is being far outgiven by these other three poorer churches. And so he's saying, you're the richest church, but you're not giving sacrificially the way these other economically churches in Macedonia have disciplined themselves to faithfully give. And he's saying, they had the wisdom to follow my counsel that I gave you a year ago. We find that at the end of 1 Corinthians about setting aside money from the first fruits of what God has given you rather than me having to come and collect it to you, uh, collect it from you at the end. He says this at the uh, end of uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. So here's what he's saying. He says, when I show up, I want you to already have the gift ready for me so that I don't have to call everybody together and then start prying open wallets. I don't want to have to do that. And that's what's happened in in, uh, those other three churches. He showed up and they gave him their offering. He got to Corinth and he still had quite a bit. He knows he's going to have quite a bit of work uh, left to do. And so that's a problem. These other churches gave way more than anybody expected because they made it a priority. So let me interject here just some practical um, uh, uh, application for us and then we'll move on. Some of you have heard this before, and I wish that we would all try this because this is what we do, and I think it works magnificently. It's never failed us. Here you go. When you get money, you should pay God first, pay yourself second, and then live on the rest. Well, that means we're going to have to rearrange a lot of our lifestyle. Yeah, that's true. Have you ever had to rearrange your lifestyle not based on you doing it, but on God forcing it on you? Which one would you rather do? Because sooner or later, God's going to rearrange your lifestyle one way or another. That's how the gospel works. So are you going to submit to that now and by his grace and power do it, or are you going to wait for him to discipline us? That's a serious question that we have to do. So we give first to God, we give second to us, and by the way, what do I mean by giving to us? Well, I would suggest to you that what you need to do is you need to have like that rainy day savings account that you're constantly putting money in. Okay, because sooner or later you may need it. The car will break down, there's going to be an education need, or you're going to lose a job. You're going to need that money for that. But also, you should be giving to retirement. Jesus says you got to plan. Jesus is a planner, he's not against planning, he's against hoarding. Okay, and so this is a really good system if you just discipline yourself to work through. I think you'll see the benefit of this over the long haul. Pay God first, pay yourself second, and then live on the rest, okay? And then look at verse 2. Verse 2 is amazing to me, and I mentioned it as we read through it. Think about what verse 2 says. How do you have severe test of affliction, extreme poverty, abundance of joy, and wealth of generosity all in the same verse on giving? 
It's because those three churches understand what's been given to them in Christ, which is verse 9, and they count it a privilege to give back to his work, to be able to give to the gospel. Jesus, who was rich in all things, became poor so that by his poverty, you and I would be made rich in him, justified and made righteous. And so they gave out of their first fruits in joyous response to the riches of Jesus. Paul also makes a point in verse 7 to Corinth. It's obvious that you know Christ and that the gospel is working because there's been grace evidenced in the rest of your life. You're really faithful. You're really good at the word. You're, you're really good at all of these other things. The problem is you haven't applied the Holy Spirit to your life in giving. So obviously the Spirit is working in these other areas, but you've put up that, that Holy Spirit Teflon to kind of bounce him back in this area of giving. Take that force field down in the area of giving and let the Holy Spirit work in your life there. The grace that powers your excellence in these other things is also the grace that will power your excellence in giving. And he's not commanding them to give more, but rather it is the responsibility of every pastor to, to come to his congregation and say, I want you to, in God's grace, consider and reconsider, pray and reassess. He's not asking to give them, give what they do not have, but rather reassess what you do have and how you can uh, do a little bit better. And then verse 15 uh, is really interesting. He says this, oops, let me get back there. He says this, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. Uh, Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament teaches this principle over and over. And if you've had any life experiences, you've probably experienced this as well, and you know that this is true. Those who hoard never seem to have enough. If you're walking around with closed fists, you never seem to feel like you have enough. But those who are generous, those who open up their hands, always seem to have more than they need. Proverbs 11 says it like this. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and suffers only want. And what is it that we're withholding it for? Certainly we need retirement. Certainly we need savings. We need to plan. We need wisdom. We need to be smart. But where's that line? Okay? And generally the line is a little bit further than we're willing to uh, uh, acknowledge. But where's that line? Uh, there's this great story about John D. Rockefeller. He was one of the richest men to ever live in the history of the world and certainly in the United States. And, and he died. And there was somebody who was close to somebody who knew all about John D. Rockefeller's estate. And there's a story about him going to this guy and kind of going, well, how, how much did Rockefeller leave when he died? And the guy leans over and he goes, he left all of it. <laughs> we are voyeurs on money, man. We, don't, we voyeur everything. And we're curious about how much money John D. Rockefeller had as well. And this guy used it as an opportunity to teach a truth about life. You don't take it with you to the afterlife. And so maybe that needs to be part of the planning as well. So Paul uses this situation to generalize about gospel truths in relationship to giving and wealth. And then he wraps it up with these three verses in chapter 9. Verses 6 through 8. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he is decided in his heart, as he engages the Holy Spirit. Each one must uh, give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So Paul says, if, if you're stingy, contentedness will elude you. If you're generous, joy will infect you. He says, grace is at the core of everything that a Christian does, including giving. And please understand that what Paul is saying here is not, he's not saying, wait until you're cheerful to give, but rather he is saying, true gospel-centered giving will lead to cheerfulness and, and joy. So Paul's saying that by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is great blessing in giving sacrificially. Paul doesn't want God's people to miss this blessing, this joy. Even Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so I'm asking for some help, just for you to reassess. You may not change anything, and that's fine. I'm just asking for you to go through the exercise of praying and reassessing. And ultimately, I'm leaving that in your hands with the Holy Spirit because, again, the last thing we want is for you to start giving because you think the pastor needs you to give. I want you to be able to give out of your relationship with Christ, and I want to remind you that sometimes we've got to go there and inquire of God in the midst of that. Uh, we need to remember that James says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So next week we're going to be back in the Psalms. Let me pray, and we will start our time of response. Uh, Lord God, again, we thank you for... Uh, your word and its truth, and we thank you for the Holy Spirit, even though there are times when the Holy Spirit uh, stirs us up in, in, in uncomfortable and awkward ways, but uh, we also know that the Holy Spirit always stirs us up with truth, and so we're thankful for that. And so we pray that in your grace and in your wisdom, uh, we would discern what is true, what is honorable, what is right, uh, and what is, what is needed to be done. I just pray that we would be able to do that. Pray that you would always continuously look to Jesus, the one who in his wealth, he gave it all up and became impoverished so that, so that we might become wealthy. God, thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>